Well, I don't always give titles, but I'm going to give a title that summarizes what I want to say in the sermon or what I think this text is saying. And the title that I'm going to give is Don't Be Like Pharaoh. I think, by and large, this is the large message of this passage of Scripture. I want to make a few observations about this section. Uh, I want to comment on the signs themselves and their symbolism. And then I'm going to make three smaller points and one really big point. And you can guess what the really big point is. So just some observations about the text. Maybe you noticed some of these things as, as it went along. There's a rhythm to it. Did anybody notice the rhythm? Of course, there's nine plagues. But they have this sort of uh, rhythm to them. Three of them begin with go to him in the morning. Three of them begin with go into Pharaoh, presumably into his court. And three of them just begin with God saying, hey, declare this plague. Just do it. So there's this sense of a progression that goes through the plagues. So there's three sets of three. And of course, as you may have heard many times before, probably each one of these plagues is calibrated to one of the deities of the Egyptians. And I'll get into some of those in a minute. But the two biggest deities of the Egyptians were the Nile, the river, and Pharaoh was seen to be the god in charge of it, and the sun. And so that last plague specifically speaks to that. But notice, too, they increase in severity. So those first three plagues are more of a nuisance. They're more of a a problem that they can get around, but nobody dies. Nobody's uh, suffering in their own body. But then that next set of plagues brings real damage. And the sixth one in particular brings boils on the bodies of the Egyptians. So there's this increasing level of severity. Notice also that as time goes by, God draws this division between his people and between the Egyptians, right? Presumably those first plagues happened to everybody. But as time goes by, they're specifically targeting the Egyptians themselves. And then finally, notice that Aaron sort of disappears. In those first couple of incidents, Aaron is instrumental. But then it's just Moses. Likewise, the the magicians are in those first several ones. And then they sort of bow out because they can't uh, stand before, before Moses because of the boils. And then just the last observation I would make, nothing, almost nothing is mentioned of Israel during this time. And I want you to consider what they must have been thinking as they saw God act on their behalf. And as they heard of the plagues that didn't happen to them. Can you imagine what that did to them? How that spoke of God's care for them. How that spoke of what he was willing to do on their behalf. We'll get into some of what that must have meant to them. So the second thing I want to do is speak to these signs. And the thing I want to say here is it's important to note that the miraculous nature of the signs is not the most important thing. Does that make sense? They are miraculous. They're acts of God. But that is not the most important thing about them. God can perform miracles, does perform miracles. But what are the miracles trying to say? They have a message. They're speaking and they're trying to say something or God is trying to say something to Pharaoh through each one of those miracles. And the question is, is Pharaoh hearing the message? Now, some people speculate that God may have used natural events, cycles of nature, things that happen in Egypt. There's something called a red tide, which is some kind of flood of red earth that does happen periodically in Egypt. So maybe God sovereignly used those things. But again, the point is, 
What are the miracles saying? What are the signs signifying? What are they pointing to? Let me suggest a couple of things. First of all, overall, the big picture is this. Pharaoh has attacked and oppressed God's son. And God is now going to do something about it. Does that make sense? Several times he says, he calls Israel my begotten son, my firstborn. And Pharaoh has oppressed Israel. Pharaoh has tried to kill the male children of Israel. Pharaoh has attacked God's son. And God shows up and says, you let my son go or there's going to be consequences for you. I think that's the large picture of what's going on in these plagues. But look at individual ones. For example, the Nile into blood. Now think about that. Remember when Abel is killed, God tells Cain that his blood cries out from the ground. Well, what did Pharaoh do? He had those babies thrown into the Nile, and their blood is crying out from the Nile. The message of the, the, the Nile turning into blood is, you have killed, you have killed the children of Israel. And it is coming back on your head. Their blood is crying out from the Nile, as it were. The frogs. We know that there is an Egyptian goddess named Hecate. And Hecate was uh, a goddess of fertility, among other things, and midwives. And think about the symbolism of this. Pharaoh told the midwives to kill the babies that the Egyptians had. And so in mockery of this goddess, and as an apt response to what God has done, these, these frogs plague Egypt and come against, symbolically come against what Pharaoh tried to do in killing the firstborn. Darkness. I think that last plague, excuse me, the ninth plague, as it comes along, God is saying, when you resist me, your mind, your heart is darkened. The more you resist me, the more I give you over. The more foolish you become, the more hard-hearted and darkened of mind you become. It was certainly some kind of darkness, but what was it saying? That Pharaoh had darkened his own mind by resisting God and standing against him. So in all of these plagues, there's something symbolic going on. And the overall message is, let my people go. Now, I'd also point out that in the Gospels, when Jesus performs miracles, repeatedly, guess what they're called? Signs. But with Jesus, the signs aren't destructive miracles. They're life-giving miracles that graciously represent who he is and what he's doing. So the question is, are you reading? Is Pharaoh reading the signs? Are they paying attention to the message that the signs are bringing? All right, now let me make three sort of smaller points and then one large point about this whole passage of Scripture. The first one is this. I think the magicians represent, among other things, the human temptation to believe that we can control everything. Now, in that day, that was done through magical arts. In our day, that's done through all kinds of other means, whether it's science or other things. And I'm not saying science is not true. I'm saying there is a universal temptation in the human heart to think we, through our skills, through our abilities, can control all outcomes. And I think God is humbling that very temptation in all of them. And notice the irony of this. Did anybody notice the irony that the things that the magicians could do weren't good things? That they make snakes and that they make the water turn into blood? Well, thanks. Yeah. All right, they, they just make things worse. They don't make things better. 
But again, it's a universal and I think a modern temptation to think we can control all outcomes. And God is humbling that, out, humbling that temptation. We, and here's the thing. Today, we can do so much. It is amazing. It is remarkable the things that human beings with science, technology, ingenuity, hard work can do. But the temptation is to think we can control all outcomes. That we can make everything happen that we want to happen. But we can't. You and I can't control all outcomes in our own lives. And much less can we control all outcomes at a societal level. And these last three years are a good example of exactly that. The more we do, especially at a larger scale, the more unintended consequences flow from it. The more things that we never anticipated flow from it. And I think God is trying to teach Pharaoh. He's trying to teach the Egyptians that there's so much that we don't know and there's so much we can't control. What do you do then? All right, Israel cried out to God. Israel prayed. Israel turned to God and trusted him and looked to him. And they took all those opportunities, those things that are in our lives that we can't control to say, God, I can't control my life. I can do my best. But I trust you and I turn to you. So how do we respond when things in our lives get out of control? All right. The magicians clearly were losing the message. The second smaller point I want to make, it's just a it's a minor thing that happens in passing. I believe it's in the seventh plague. Did anybody notice that it said that some of Pharaoh's servants feared God and they got the message? And they put their animals out of harm's way. I think one of the things, it's sort of good news. Not all the Egyptians were like Pharaoh. Some of them were beginning to say, wait a minute, there's something going on. And they feared God and they responded. Later, when Israel goes out through the Red Sea into the wilderness, it says there's a mixed multitude with them. And most people think that that means some Egyptians went with them. Some disaffected in Egyptian society said, look at the God of the Hebrews. We want to be a part of them. You'll remember when they get to the promised land, Rahab herself hears the message of the Exodus and says, I want to be a part of that people. Some of the Egyptians responded to that. And that's the good news that there is always the opportunity to join in with the people of God, to become a part of the people of God for whom he is acting in history on their behalf. The third point, before I get to the last point, is did anybody notice this this refrain? Again, I haven't counted how many times, but it's a lot. That you may know that Yahweh is God. Did anybody notice this? This is a continual refrain. Everything God is doing is so that Pharaoh will know that he is God. Now, remember in the beginning of the whole thing, when Moses goes in and says, let my people go because Yahweh has appeared to us. You should let Israel go. He says, I don't know Yahweh. Or you could say it this way. I don't acknowledge that God. Who is he? He has nothing to do with me. And so Yahweh introduces himself. God introduces himself in plague after plague and says, this is who I am. I will act on behalf of my son. I will act to deliver him against those who oppress him. In many ways, all of Exodus, one of the ways you could summarize the book is the unfolding of this question, the answering of this question, God, what is your name? 
What are you like? Who are you? That is for Israel. That is for Pharaoh. That is for the nations. God is answering the question, who is he? What is he like? So that the nations will know that Yahweh is God. And so, by the way, that Pharaoh maybe could know in a way that didn't destroy him, in a way in which he submitted to Yahweh and didn't resist him. So what are some of the things they are beginning, we're beginning to learn about God in all of this? First, God intervenes on behalf of his people. God hears their cry. He cares for them, and he intervenes on their behalf. Second, they're saved by grace. We have a tendency to think that salvation by grace is this message of the New Testament. But I want to point out that Israel did nothing to deserve God's intervention. It doesn't say they were righteous. It doesn't say they were in a good position. In fact, we're going to find out they're in a bad position. But God acted on their behalf before they ever were in a position to respond to him. They don't deserve this action. He's just committed to them. And he's acting on their behalf. And it's very important that you see that when the law comes, it comes in that context. God says, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of Egypt. I have already intervened in so many ways on your behalf. So they're saved by God's grace. He acts on behalf of his beloved son. He desires that none should perish. And he can use even the stubbornness of a tyrant to save them. So this brings me to the last point, the big point from which we get the name of the sermon. Don't be like Pharaoh. In Proverbs chapter 4, it says, above all else, guard your heart, for out of it are the issues of life. In scripture, the heart is your center, it's your will. And God is saying repeatedly through scriptures, above all else, pay attention to what you're choosing, where your will is, where your orientation of your heart is. I think that we're troubled by these passages because it seems like God unfairly took away Pharaoh's free will and did all these terrible things to him. And I think that this text, if you pay attention, is saying right the opposite. It's saying something entirely different from that. First of all, notice, we've said before, Pharaoh did not have to act this way. Other Pharaohs didn't act this way. Other leaders, other men of power throughout the world didn't act the way this Pharaoh did in this case. This reading of the text, if you pay attention, is, is telling the story in a way that's very descriptive of evil in the human heart. And the way evil begins to insinuate and create grooves in the human heart. So a couple of things. How did Pharaoh act before God began interacting with him? He was an evil man. He oppressed people who were weaker underneath him. And when they complained, he made it harder on them. All right, this Pharaoh is not a good guy who God just innocently showed up and, and did some mean things to. He was a really evil guy that God showed up and challenged. He dealt shrewdly with the people of Israel. He says, come, let us deal shrewdly with the people of Israel. Later on, God specifically says to Israel, don't treat people who are weaker shrewdly. Because you know what it's like to be treated that way in Egypt. 
So God sees his people being abused and oppressed, and he intervenes on behalf of his son. And God, in his first commands to Pharaoh through Moses, says, listen, you need to act justly. You need to stop what you're doing, and you need to let my people go that they may serve me. This assumes that Pharaoh has the opportunity to respond to God. He could have. Remember the Pharaoh before who, saw, who had plagues because he took uh, Sarah. He's like, why, did, why are these plagues happening? Oh, my goodness, it's because I've taken the wife of this guy and he gives him back. All right, he could have responded that way. Then notice as the text unfolds, God gives Pharaoh, I count, at least five opportunities to repent. Five opportunities to say, oh, my goodness, I, I, what I'm doing is evil. What I'm doing is wrong, and I'm opposing God, and I want to stop. In the first five plagues, it does not say that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It says that his heart was hard or that he hardened his heart, that it was his resistance to the will of God. And notice how clear God is. You know, as parents, we say, listen, if you do that, I'm going to do this, and we don't all, we're not always consistent. But notice what God does. Let my people go. If you don't, this is what will happen. And that's exactly what God does five times. And he doesn't start out super harsh. He starts out simply. But Pharaoh resists. And it is only after Pharaoh has resisted clear messages five times that God then hardens his heart. I think among other things, the scripture is teaching us that evil can insinuate itself in our lives and there can be this point of no return. If you let sin take its place, and you resist God, you can, you can move past a point of no return. You can ossify and harden yourself in evil beyond a point where your free will is lost because you've so given yourself up to evil. Ultimately, Pharaoh refuses to acknowledge Yahweh. And here's the point, another point. God can use even that resistance to his good purposes. God can use even wicked Human evil, stubborn resistance to the will of God, to his purposes. Remember Joseph when his brothers came and they're afraid that Joseph is going to kill them because of what they did. He says, what you intended for good, uh, for evil, God used for good. And I think that is another key message here. Don't be like Pharaoh. But God, if people are like Pharaoh, can use even that rebellion to his purpose. Let me speak a few steps ahead in our story. Later, we're going to find out that Israel, shockingly, this should be shocking if we're letting the story kind of tell itself as if it's the first time we've heard it, they have hard hearts. Wait a minute. God's people are acting like Pharaoh. They have hard hearts. And at the end of Moses' years of walking with and dealing with the people of God, what does he say? You guys have hard hearts. And you know what? You need your heart circumcised. There needs to be something that God does in your hearts because your hearts are like Pharaoh. You're his people, but your hearts are like Pharaoh. And just so we're sure that this is not just an Old Testament phenomenon, especially in the Gospel of Mark, Mark tells us that the disciples' hearts were what? They were hard. Jesus was doing miracles and saying what he was going to do, and he says to them, guys, do you, are your hearts hard? Do you not see what I'm saying and what I'm doing? And it is not until the cross and the gift of the Holy Spirit 
that the disciples themselves, their hearts are circumcised. This is the fulfillment of this whole story. It is only through the cross and through the gift of the Holy Spirit that that hardness of heart can be cut away. The scripture says that the heart is wicked above all else. Who can know it? We cannot fathom the evilness of our own hearts. But the promise of the gospel is that through the work of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit can be given to those who believe so God can soften our hearts. So he can interact with our hearts. So that he can interact with our hearts and give us a grace to be soft to him and open to him in a way that Pharaoh could not. But again, it's with the help of the Holy Spirit. In the book of Romans chapter 2, Paul says that, listen, circumcision of the flesh is not necessarily the circumcision. Circumcision was again a sign. And what was it pointing to? It was pointing to the promise that comes through Jesus Christ that he would give his Holy Spirit and that his Holy Spirit would soften our hearts so that we turn from people who were oriented towards getting praise from other people to people who said, I want to know what God wants and I want to do that. And that's the promise of the gospel. Amen. So because of Jesus and because of the gift of the Holy Spirit, by his grace, we cannot, we can choose by his grace to not be like Pharaoh. But I want to, before we come to the table tonight, I just want to ask.